Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular story and podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth episode. And check this out. We did an episode last week. Oh, my God. And we're doing an episode this week. It's crazy. What a concept. A weekly episode of the Midnight Myth we haven't we haven't done this since our son was born. No. And the fates have really transpired, conspired, I should say. The stars have aligned up perfectly. It is as if we had prescient visions of what we needed to do brought on by some new substance that we were interacting with on a world that we had never been on before. And now we're walking some path that is in some way golden. And so many thousands of years of eugenics have been built into (laughs) us walking this path of doing two episodes in as many weeks. Ladies and gentlemen, the Midnight Myth is back. And this is also a special one, too, because we haven't done a It movie in a while. We used to go to the movies very frequently and then feeling inspired by said movie, we would do an episode. And then when we look back at some of those episodes, we felt as if that wasn't our strongest work. We feel like we do our best work when we're dealing with things that we've had a lot of time to think about, a lot of time to parcel through our opinions, and a lot of time to do additional research into what we wanted to say. 
But this movie that we're going to be talking about tonight, which we teased a little bit already, this movie really felt special and very much felt like worthy of the Midnight Myth treatment, even though we've only seen it twice. Most of the movies that we we talk about, we have seen several times. I'm really excited to roll up my sleeves and do this. We are going to Arrakis. We are going to be talking about the movie everyone is talking about, inspired by the legendary work of science fiction of Frank Herbert. We are going to be talking about Denis Veneuve's Dune. Yeah, baby, we're going to Arrakis. I am super excited about this. We, uh, like you said, we've seen Dune twice now, and uh, we watched it the night that it came out on HBO, and then we watched it again to prepare for this episode, uh, and were really moved by it and felt like we had to do an episode. We'll, we are also both uh, folks who have read uh, at least some of the books. Derek has read Dune, uh, the first installment of the series by Frank Herbert. I have read, now at this point, Dune, Dune Messiah, and Children of Dune, and I have God Emperor of Dune on hold at the library, so maybe I'll get that sometime in the next 10,000 years. But uh, So we have a little bit of background that we may bring to our conversation tonight, but we'll try not to bog it down with too much of the details about the book so that folks who haven't read them can still enjoy it. We're also not exhaustive readers of it where we have poured over all of the apocryphal materials or gone into so much of the world building that we know every single detail of the background. So you're not coming here for uh, you know, us digging into the minutia of the Butlerian Jihad or why Mentats exist. That's not what we're here for, but we welcome that conversation and we love people who do have that conversation and that's definitely out there. Yeah, my thoughts on Dune, the sci-fi series, I have first attempted, and pardon me, Midnight Myth listeners, I have a little bit of a non-COVID head cold, so you might hear that in my voice. I might have to clear my throat a little bit more. Oh, yeah, because our baby is sick again for like the 22nd straight week. Yes, nobody warns you that when your baby goes to daycare, you are pretty much sending your baby into the den of germs that the baby then brings back to your house, and that you are also exposed to all these germs. It's awesome. Yes, it's not awesome. But in any way, in any event, when I first encountered the book Dune, I was a wee teenager. I had just finished reading Lord of the Rings, and I think it was my mom who suggested Dune, or maybe a friend, someone who knew I liked Lord of the Rings and I liked Star Wars, was like, well, then you gotta read Dune. And it just really wasn't the right time for me to read the book. I did not connect to it. I did not like it. I struggled to get through it. I put it down. A few years later, because I still had a copy of it, I tried again, and then I ended up giving the book away or losing it somewhere along my travels. Flash forward to 2020, I think it was. Yeah. 2020, Laurel listens to the audiobook. Yeah, I, I read it in uh, 2019, yeah. Or 2019, and you were, it, yeah. you were really enamored with it. And you were like, you know, you should revisit this. So I listened to the audiobook of Dune and found myself really intrigued and really enjoying it. I get why there are Dune super fans. Sure. And I respect that fandom tremendously. One of my heroes, George Lucas, is a Dune super fan. So I think it's really cool and I think it's really amazing. I felt really good reading the first book. And I'm like, this is great. I enjoyed it. I don't necessarily want to continue with the series, at least not at this time. 
So I am not a Dune super fan. And in this conversation, that will probably come out that I'm not a Dune super fan. I think that's totally fair. And to be honest, I have complicated feelings about the books as well. And it was just kind of a strange compulsion that made me blow through the first book and the second book and then pick up the third book this year. Um, I, I have some things that I deeply love about the series and then some things that I still am wrestling with my feelings about. So pardon us this kind of tangent about the Frank Herbert books, which then were picked up by his son later after he passed away. And now there are just tons and tons of Dune books. Um, it's complicated for me, but I, like you do, I have tons of respect for the material and for the world and I am drawn into it again and again. And I could not wait for this movie to come out. Yeah. And when the trailer dropped fun story here, midnight myth listeners for a long time, I have been unhappy, had been unhappy with the overall quality of my television. It was not a very good television. It did its job. And I was clamoring to upgrade the television. In particular, I wanted an OLED TV. Laurel was always of the camp. Our television is fine. We don't need to upgrade it. Then the Dune trailer drops. <laughs> Laurel at this time is pregnant. Or no, yeah, you're pregnant at the time. The pandemic is happening. And we realize the chances of us going to see Dune in the theater are zero, which we did not. And then there was the HBO Max announcement. And then HBO announced that it would be airing the Dune at the same time on the subscription service as it was in the theaters. And Laurel looked at me and said, it's time for a new TV. For no other reason than Just that. Just for Dune, yeah. Dune is my favorite movie of 2021 because it got me the OLED TV <laughs> that I wanted for such a long time. You're welcome. Thank you, Dune, and thank you to my wife, Laurel. All right, we have a lot to talk about. Yes, we do. No more preamble, except do your thing, Laurel. Yeah, absolutely. We would love to hear from you at The Midnight Myth. We are all over social media. We're on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook, and we're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. And you can drop us a line anytime. We'll always respond if we can. Uh, we are also on the World Wide Web at MidnightMyth.com. You can head to our website for more information and blogs. Uh, and for a link to our Patreon and our merch store, if you want to support us with your hard-earned dollars, especially coming up on the holiday season, we should do a merch refresh. Maybe I'll try and get some new uh, stuff in the store. Uh, but definitely check that out if you've got friends who enjoy the podcast. Buy them a mug, a t-shirt, a baby onesie, whatever you got. Uh, also, the best thing you can do for the podcast costs you no money at all. It's just leaving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. So if you enjoy the show, head over to any place you can rate us and drop us five stars and a couple of words about why you like the podcast. It is so, so helpful and meaningful. And if you love us, tell a friend. And if you hate us, tell an enemy. <laughs> I think I said that once and now it's like Derek's favorite thing. Yeah, I love it. Yep, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. All right, so I'm going to attempt to do a briefest of brief recaps. This takes place about uh, 20,000 years into the future. Humanity has conquered several planets. There's a galactic emperor who runs a galactic empire. And there's a planet called Arrakis where this, uh, this spice called Melange is used to propel intergalactic space travel. And it's the most valuable substance on the, in the whole known universe. The movie starts with a noble house, Atreides, given Arrakis as a fief to run to get the spice mining on track away from their mortal enemy's house, Harkonnen. And this seems like a good but dangerous proposition 
for the noble house Atreides, who is run by Duke Leto, who also has his son Paul, the main character of the movie, and Duke Leto's concubine, the Lady Jess, the Lady Jessica, who's part of a Benny Gesserit eugenics religious project that's designed to breed the superhuman who will conquer the galaxy and advance humanity to their next stage of evolution. Hopefully you got all that. Yep. It comes very clear that this uh, attempt to put House Atreides onto Arrakis is in fact a deep ploy by the Emperor and House Harkonnen to wipe out the Atreides as they are one of the most popular and influential houses in the Galactic Empire. The Emperor and the Harkonnens see them as a threat and the Harkonnens surprise attack House Atreides with lots of interesting mechanics, assassination plots, double-crossing doctors, etc., at the end of this, Paul and Jessica end up barely escaping, and there is an indigenous population with blue eyes known as the Fremen. Jessica and Paul end up interacting with the Fremen as they are escaping the clutches of Shai Halud, the gigantic desert worms that burrow underneath the ground of Arrakis that live off of the sand. There, Paul interacts with the Fremen, and one of the Fremen challenges Paul to a duel to the death, Otherwise, they would not be able to go back to the Fremen city, a duel in which Paul reluctantly wins and kills the Fremen, cementing his place among the people. Paul also has visions of the future that as he interacts with the Sprite, the spice get more prescient and get more clear. And the movie ends with Paul deciding that instead of being smuggled off world to make his case to the emperor that what they did to House Atreides is wrong, to stay with the Fremen and lead, potentially fulfilling a planted prophecy by the Bene Gesserits that the Kwisak Sadarak will come from Arrakis, who is this long-awaited messianic figure who will advance humanity to the next stage of evolution. It's also worth noting that one of Paul's visions before he makes this choice is a global, or pardon me, intergalactic war which will cost the lives of billions all done in his name, something that gives him a little bit of consternation, to say the least. Nevertheless, the movie ends with Paul and the Fremen Cheney, who he has visions with as well, going to back to the Fremen city together, and the next stage of their adventure should be in Dune Part 2. Ooh, amazing. What an admirable effort. Thank you for that. I left out Duncan Idaho, Gurney Halleck, yeah. the Mentats, all of these things, all of the interesting characters of Kaus Harkonnen, all the amazing symbolism in the movie, but that's just as brief as I could do it. That's why it's called the briefest of brief recaps. There's no such thing as a briefest of brief recap when it comes to Dune that is satisfactory because like the entire Dune part one movie is basically a briefest of brief recap. That's as quickly and efficiently as they could tell that story. Now this is normally Two and a half hours. Yeah. This is normally the part where we would ask, does the piece of work that we're analyzing hold up? Dune has been out for a few weeks now. So that question really doesn't feel applicable to this particular text. So I do want to wonder, Laurel, just give me your impression of the movie, how you felt about it, maybe some high-level takeaways. I loved it. I really did. And I was anticipating this movie for years and waiting for this to happen and really got high expectations and then started to really worry towards the end uh, of the weight that it was going to disappoint me. And I was not disappointed at all. And especially after two watches, I feel really, really good about it uh, and what 
Denis Villeneuve is able to accomplish. I think he is a terrific filmmaker, and I love Arrival especially. And even though Blade Runner 2049 is not going to be on the top of any of my lists, I do think it was an extremely uh, worthwhile and admirable effort on his part. And really, he is an incredible auteur of the modern world. So I kind of bow before uh, Denis Villeneuve these days. Bow before Shai Hulud. Yeah, um, Shai Hulud Venu. <laughs> yeah, so I'm I'm a big fan, and I think he has a, a terrific voice, and brought the the book to the screen with a tremendous amount of love. Uh, it truly felt like someone who loves the story and loves stories and loves cinema, bringing something big, epic magnificent to the screen and I wish I could have seen it on a big screen and maybe someday we will. Things are just really tough when you have a 10 month old at home. So obviously, you know, terrific visuals, uh, incredible sweeping epic story that is just mind blowing to look at. And the music all comes together with wonderful performances on a technical level. You kind of can't beat this. The visual effects are glorious um, and the locations are incredible. So I just can't say enough about the technical craft of it. Uh, I also think, you know, I'm not the kind of person who thinks that book adaptations need to be one-to-one. There has to be a reason that you're taking it from one medium into another. You have to, uh, you know, use the, the strengths and uh, make up for the weaknesses of whichever medium you're working in. I, not to interrupt, I guess we should say spoiler warning. Oh, yeah, If you yeah. haven't seen Dune, go on. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I, I don't think that, uh, you know, adaptations need to be 100% faithful. I think that is a a mistake to make adaptations 100% faithful, but this to me, um, felt faithful to the spirit of the books 100%, um, and then like 85% faithful to the actual content. So I think it was really, really successful in how it was able to adapt, uh, the source material, there are a couple of times when Villeneuve is faithful to a fault and includes things that don't really need to be there, um, that are not particularly meaningful to an audience that hasn't read the books or even to me having actually read it. So an example of that is probably my favorite scene in the entire book is when Shoutout Mapes gives a Chris knife to Lady Jessica. It's given a lot of room to breathe in the book and in the movie, it just feels perfunctory to me. Like, we just had to get through it and make this happen without spending time having the characters interact um, in a way that's significant. And that, to me, is like, if you're not going to take the time, it, it doesn't actually need to be there. So there are moments where I think uh, a little more restraint could have, have been helpful, but um, overall, I think, in terms of translating the source material, it's done really successfully. Um, and... It left me, honestly, feeling so uh, triumphant and feeling so excited for what is to come, even though a sequel hadn't been promised yet by the time I watched the movie. But to end your movie on the line, this is only the beginning, is so, like, it's so cliche, but it comes across so achingly sincere, and it really, really worked for me in this moment because I felt like I'd been watching a labor of absolute love. So yeah, there are flaws, but this to me was a really exciting cinematic event. To the point where they are faithful to the book almost to a fault, I really feel like that's in the first like 55 to 65% of the movie. Yeah. Where So the example that I have, I thought the Chris Knife scene was fine, 
the scene that most to me symbolized we're doing this because it's in the book, whether it makes sense in the movie or not, was the hunter seeker and the assassination attempt on Paul's life. In the book, that's a major plot point. It ends up almost dividing the entire House Atreides over who the assassin is. They think for they after that assassination attempt, pardon me, they know that there's a traitor in the house and the mission is who is the traitor? We must snuff them out before they get to to get to House Atreides. And the thinking by many members of the Atreides court is that it's Jessica. So it puts her in suspicion. And that's a major plot point there that the hunter seeker tries to kill Paul. He catches it. The next scene, Gurney Halleck is joking about it. And it's just like, yeah, someone tried to kill the Duke's son, but you know, we're, we're just going to go along like that didn't happen. And I think that was added into the movie to say that they had that in there, but yet without that subplot, that scene doesn't carry a ton of weight other than showing us that Paul is really tough and really good at combat, which we already had the scene with him dueling with Gurney Halleck, exhibiting his prowess with the sword, his ability to fight. So we didn't really need that additional scene to prove how tough Paul could be when pushed to violence. It was already proven, but because that's a key thing in the book, they put it into the movie. And I think that leads to, in particular, the first half of the movie, sometimes feeling a little bloated. And I think that is my, and I wouldn't call it a criticism as much as a nitpick. Yeah. And it's, it's very much, it's those two scenes are really similar in that way. It's like the first few sequences when they arrive on Arrakis, it's like, and then this happens and then this happens and then this happens, but there's not a clear uh, directional velocity from scene to scene. And there's not really, uh, it doesn't feel like the scenes are unfolding organically out of each other and the consequences of the last ones. It just feels like a sequence of events. That being stated, and I agree with that, when I walked away from my first viewing of Dune, I had a similar meditation that I did after seeing both The Matrix and then Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. And that feeling was, cinema has changed. They can do things in cinema that were not previously possible that are that will blow me away while I watch it now and that will reverberate through. Now, the next big budget special effects movie, the question will be, does it compare to Dune? And if the answer is no, sorry, I don't really, I'm not going to be sold by it. I'm not going to be into it. I'm not going to be able to go along with that big budget special effects movie because there's a new standard. The bar has risen to Dune and every other movie will be compared to it. Similar in the way that the original Star Wars operated as this watershed moment. Look what you can do in this art form. We are doing something that no one else thought was possible, that no one else could do. We're going to pull it off and every other movie with big budget special effects will now be judged on the Dune standard. And if you're not up to it, I think audiences are going to be like, well, that looked cool, but doesn't look as good as Dune. Right. And I think that speaks volumes to the skill of the team that made this movie. I was also fully invested in the way they built this world, the way that they brought it to life. I think all of the acting was on from the scale of really good to great. I don't think there was any bad performance in the whole thing. I, the first time I watched it, I thought to myself, 
this was an amazing experience, but not a conventionally good movie in the traditional sense. In the, like, I'm trying to think, in The Godfather, like, The Godfather is a good movie. We all agree on it. It's a classic. And I'm like, Dune's not that. There's just too many little weird problems. Going back and watching it the second time, I really let the experience wash over me. And I just wanted to watch it with an open mind and not watch it with a critical mind, which isn't to say I watched it passively. I was still wanting to engage with it, but I also just didn't want to look at it with, let me find the things that I think aren't working here, but let me just soak in this experience and enjoy this moving painting. And that's really what this is. It is a moving painting. You talk about the issue where the scenes don't really flow exactly, especially in the beginning from one to the other. That's okay because it's just one painting to the next painting. Every single detail, every crevice of this movie was designed with love and with care and it shows and it comes through in spades. And I think it is a modern masterpiece that will stand the test of time. I think in 20 years, people are going to be talking about this movie in the same way that 20 years after the matrix was made. Guess what? People are still going to be talking about this movie. I hope it, it spawns sequels that are up to the quality of this movie or surpass it. I really do. But even if the sequels fail, it doesn't matter because this movie was so extraordinary and groundbreaking that it will change things. Yeah, excellent. Just a couple of things we'll call out before we get into deeper analysis. And I feel like have to be said, Jason Momoa, just as Duncan Idaho, outstanding. I love it. He is totally convincing to me and has just become, he's inhabiting Duncan Idaho in a way that I did not think was possible. And I absolutely loved his performance. And anybody who disagrees with me, bye. <laughs> we respect your opinion and welcome your counter analysis. I absolutely love that. But you're wrong. Duncan Idaho was perfect. Love the casting of uh, Sharon Duncan Brewster as Leah Kynes. And I also really respect Villeneuve's handling of exposition and backstory and world building. Obviously, they throw a ton at you and they don't skip over that many details. But if something's really important, then they go out of their way to repeat it two or three times. So like, yeah, the Harkonnens or whoever is the Duke or Baron of Arrakis is an oppressor of the Fremen. The Bene Gesserit are working to uh, plant superstitions and build a prophecy around a messiah, then engineer that messiah. Uh, the sandworms are sacred to the Fremen. The spice is the most important uh, substance in the universe. Those things that are actually super important are repeated visually, verbally, multiple times so that you get the point. I agree wholeheartedly, 100%. I mean, Denis Venue is, he's like the new Peter Jackson, right? He's the new Wachowski sisters. He's the new, like, you want to build a world and have people disappear into it and blow people away. He's the new James Cameron. Yeah, sure. Yeah, a little less it. commercial than James Cameron, but still he's got that flair. He can really push what you thought was possible and build a world that people can walk into. And he can make Dune and make $300 million. In a pandemic. In a pandemic. Let's talk a little analysis because yes. we could gush about this movie all day long, all night long. In fact, we probably will when we turn off. But this is a show, this is a podcast about history, mythology, and philosophy, first and foremost. 
So where would you like to begin in our analysis piece? I want to talk about the Benny Gesserit. And I'm really excited that there's going to be a Benny Gesserit sisterhood tie-in series on HBO, at least at this point. I think that is still in the works uh, because they are such an interesting component of the Duneverse and something that I think requires lots of extra time and interest. But they were really interesting to me when reading the book as well because I love the idea of a really powerful uh, woman-led organization that has hands and things all over the universe. I think that is a really cool way to imagine the future. But the thing that really grabbed me when I was reading and that grabbed me again in the movie is this idea that the Bene Gesserit are not just political manipulators. They are playing a really long game, and that involves a really very cynical uh, perspective on mythology and legend and how those things work in sociology. And so that's kind of what I want to talk about uh, with regard to Dune today. And just think about what that means for the actual advent of mythology and where there are tie-ins to that in the real world. Yeah, one of the things when reading the book that really sucked me in was how the Bene Gesserits combine a both on one hand a scientific aspect to what they do, that they are about controlling the breeding of the noble houses so that they can manipulate the genes to get the gene pool selection they want to craft the hero. Then on the other hand, the religious and mythological component. They are definitely revered among all of the nobility. The nobility are seen with Bene Gesserits. They are an organization with an orthodoxy, a hierarchy. There are people at the top of the Bene Gesserits and below. And then at the same time, there is a folkloric mythic, and I use those interchangeably here, component, where when they want to manufacture certain outcomes among large groups of people, the first thing they do is start planting different mythic ideas, different folkloric traditions, different oral traditions in the hopes that they'll spread among populations. The whole idea that Paul will be the chosen one, that there is a Fremen chosen one who will come from off world to Arrakis and turn it into a paradise was planted by the Bene Gesserits. And it was planted so successfully that when Paul and Jessica arrive, the Fremen are waiting and chanting Lisan al-Gaib, which is their word for Messiah. And when uh, Jessica and Paul notice this, Jessica explains, this means the Bene Gesserit have been at work here. So it's a long game. It requires, you know, centuries of forethought. It requires an incredible amount of Machiavellian power moves and also a really interesting understanding of human nature and communication and how things travel through groups and how stories travel over time. And so that obviously was super interesting to me as someone who is interested in mythology writ large, but also I I love it as a component of a sci-fi story. And I think it's an interesting component of a lot of sci-fi stories that's articulated maybe best in Dune. So one of the things that I wanted to bring to the conversation is where we see something like this in our world today. Something like how do we manufacture or purpose uh, mythology? Can mythology serve a purpose in the future? And there's an area where this applies, and that's the area of what's called nuclear semiotics. This idea, uh, it comes from the fact that we as a, as a society are in a nuclear age. We... <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, listeners, a little bit of inside baseball. The reason we're laughing here is that anytime one of us says as a society on the podcast or it's not a perfect movie, uh, the other one has to drink. So <laughs> I could feel myself saying as a society. And then I looked over at Derek and he was holding up his, uh, his drink. So well, that's why that just happened. We do that when we listen to podcasts or watch any commentary any sort of political and analysis. So we try really hard to avoid it uh, just because they're not particularly meaningful words, but sometimes they have to be said in the middle of a sentence. Yeah. If you really think about it, as a society doesn't mean anything at all. We live in a society. Anyway, so what I was saying is that we live in a nuclear age uh, and we have produced a, an extraordinary amount of nuclear waste, which is extremely dangerous. It causes cancer. It causes mutation at a cellular level. And it is just one of the most harmful substances imaginable. And the biggest problem with that is that nuclear waste takes hundreds of thousands of years to decay and to no longer be dangerous. So the question is, where do we put it so that it doesn't harm people? And if it's going to last hundreds of thousands of years, how do we ensure that future generations don't wander upon our nuclear waste and get closer to it and then get cancer and be harmed for generations to come? So there have been a lot of really interesting conversations about how to communicate into future generations, thousands, hundreds of thousands of years in the future when we cannot possibly imagine where human evolution takes us. If humans even exist, you know, a thousand, 10,000 years from now, what will they look like? That's really hard to imagine. And even more importantly, how will they communicate? What language will they use? What will their culture be like? How do you communicate a cultural idea such as danger, risk of disease and death? Now, well, we do that very easily. We say danger risk of disease or death. Or we put a skull and crossbones on something. Or, or the we nuclear put the radioactive symbol. symbol. We have these shared cultural icons that we can look at today and we can understand universally, but we cannot promise that people will understand those even 200 years from now, depending on what kind of calamities await us or what kind of cultural shifts await longer as we go on. Language itself and symbols mutate so quickly that one great example of this is to just look back at anything in Old English, look back at Beowulf, or look back at any of the works of the Middle Ages that were written in places uh, that spoke Anglo-Saxon, and you cannot read it. It is unintelligible. So how do we communicate to generations in the future? And so there have been conferences that have gotten together to uh, address this question and have brought together archaeologists, geologists, designers, artists, philosophers, storytellers, people from all different kinds of disciplines and industries to address the question of communication into the future, especially when it regards danger and nuclear waste. And some really fascinating proposed solutions have come up uh, with regard to this question. One of the great ones being, why don't we genetically engineer a race of cats to change color when they come close to nuclear waste and then create a whole set of stories and folklore that go along with, if you see cats change color, you have to get out of their stat because that means there is danger ahead. Um, because symbols, like we said, you could put the radioactive symbol on the nuclear waste, but somebody might not understand that, you know, several centuries from now. 
But I also wanted to bring up one very interesting proposed solution to the nuclear semiotics question, and that's what's called the atomic priesthood. And this was proposed by someone named Thomas Seabach, whose idea was that, uh, similar to this idea of the radiation cats who change color and folklore is built around them, the best way to preserve a message or a moral is to use culture itself and to use um, cultural memory and consciousness. Uh, so not relying on written information or symbol, but on oral tradition and rites and rituals to preserve knowledge and information for the future. So the proposal says we would create a brotherhood or a sisterhood. We would create a cult of sorts of people who are the keepers and the stewards of the knowledge of the nuclear waste is there and it is bad and you should not go near it because it is dangerous. And they will preserve it through myths, through songs, through stories, through fairy tales, uh, and through other methods of folklore that can be transmitted across people and that the central message remains clear even as the language or the symbols around it change. I bring it up because this is not too dissimilar from the idea of the Bene Gesserit Sisterhood. It's a manufacturing of mythology by an elite class of people who are ostensibly working for a greater good and trying to uh, bring about the future of the human race and preserve the future of the human race by doing a pretty cynical exercise in creating folklore, creating mythology for a purpose. They're also a small group of people who have a whole lot of power, which is one of the problems with the atomic priesthood solution. When you give people, and especially an elite group of people, that much power, how are you sure that that power is not corrupted? And it relies on you know, age-old structures of priesthoods and religious orders, like the Catholic Church, which has survived for thousands of years. But how do we guarantee that this does not become uh, a shadowy organization that is working towards their own secret ends, like the Bene Gesserit might be. So I wanted to bring that in just to consider you know, what we are doing in the real world today that could eventually mutate into this idea of the Bene Gesserit. We're trying to protect people 10,000 years in the future, and Dune takes place in the year 10,191. It doesn't you know, actually line up because they're, they're not using uh, Our calendar. BCE and CE <clears throat> exactly. But I uh, just thought it was an interesting uh, parallel. This speaks to the core philosophical issue at the heart of the Bene Gesserits, which is at the heart of a lot of cultures and has had many attempts for human beings to try to understand a piece of knowledge and to pass that knowledge from one generation to the next. This is an epistemological problem at its very core. What do we know? How do we know it? And then once we know that we know it, how do we communicate it? In the problem of nuclear symbiotics, is that the right? Sem semiotics, yeah. Nuclear semiotics. Semiotics means like the study of symbols. So in nuclear semiotics, the problem is we know that there's a thing called nuclear material. We know that it's dangerous. How do we, and we know that it will be dangerous for a very long period of time. How do we pass that knowledge from generation to generation so that everybody knows this? And what's interesting is that the conceit there is that the current knowledge systems are going to collapse. The conceit there is that how we communicate ideas now 
is not how we'll communicate ideas a thousand years, let alone 99,000 years in the future. And there's some wisdom in that because the way we've communicated ideas has changed over time. It's part technological, it's part cultural. The other thing that's interesting is that it also, in this solution, this bizarre idea of creating the nuclear priesthood, the modern day Bene Gesserits, is that it admits that the best way to transmit ideas from one generation to the next, regardless of linguistic, economic, sociological, psychological changes, is through the mythopoetic knowledge system. Yeah. Is through the system of myths and legends, a system by which we still use today great examples of current mythopoetic thinking that we all as contemporary post-enlightenment, post-industrial, post-modern Americans do ask any person in America what their sign is, and they're going to know exactly what you mean. They're going to say their astrological sign. And this is a type of mythopoetic knowledge that has passed via word and mouth. And yes, there is some industry involved. You can buy books on it. You can go to places and pay for an astrologer to read their signs. But largely, that's not how I learned about it. No one went to school and opened up the astrology book to learn about it. Most of us learned about it through the passing down of folklore, for the passing down of myth from the discussion of legend. The stars mystify us. They must have a relationship with us because we can see a relationship with them. We can predict their movements, the movements of the stars. Hence, the stars can predict our lives as well. All we need to do is study them. And... And in this respect, the Bene Gesserits, armed with the knowledge of the empire, armed with secret knowledge that they keep to themselves, the weirding way as a type of combat, the voice as a type of mind control, the eugenics in which that they have figured out how to control breeding, in particular among the women who can choose whether to give a child and what sex the child will be to whoever they take as their uh, their male counterpart. And despite all of this, one of their most potent weapons is the deployment of intentional myth. And one of the things that you said, you called it cynical, and that the idea is that people don't believe it to be literally true, but they tell people that it's literally true in the hopes that they propagate that and they continue that. Well, if you want to think about you know, analogies to the idea of let's create a Messiah myth, a chosen one who will come from the outer world to Arrakis to lead Arrakis to a paradise. Ask yourself why there are dietary restrictions in the Abrahamic text. In a pre-refrigeration, pre-electric society, how do you tell the next generation what they should or should not eat because certain things could make them sick or have a greater propensity to make them sick you tell them that this food is the food God lets you eat. This is the food that God says you can't eat. It is a very similar mechanism, but I wouldn't necessarily go so far as to call the Torah cynical or the Christian Bible or the Koran cynical about creating these dietary restrictions. There's an air of cynicism about it. Whereas the Bene Gesserits, there does seem to be a underlining nefariousness, an underlining self-serving motivation to how they deploy myth to benefit themselves because you can forgive the ancient Jew, Christian, or uh, Islamic person 
for putting this in their text because they didn't know any other way. Yeah, and they're trying to protect people. And they're trying to keep people from getting sick by eating things that you can't control whether they have bacteria in them or not, right? So they're they're doing it somewhat more altruistically where you get the sense with the Bene Gesserits is that they are doing it much more about preserving their own power. I've got one other historical example of the deployment of myth deliberately and done so somewhat cynically. And this is about how the ancient Roman, especially in the late Roman period into the early medieval period, how the Catholic church created uh, systems to help convert mostly uneducated slaves and peasants into Catholicism. And it was the deployment of saints and it would go something similar to this. I go to a shrine where I have my local deity. I go to it at these set religious festivals where I don't, if I'm a slave, I'm not obligated to work the fields for my slave master. Or if I'm a peasant, I'm not obligated to work the fields for my Lord. And I go and I make prayers to my pagan God. And then in come a bunch of Romans or then medieval lords who say, we're now all Christian. And you're like, okay, great. I don't know what that means. They take you to a Christian church. It's speaking Latin. You don't speak Latin or you speak it very poorly. You've got no idea what's going on, but you're still going to at your festival. You're still going to the shrine. You're still making your sacrifices. You're lighting candles. You're doing your local rituals. But what the uh, late Roman early medieval Catholic church did was they took the statues. Most of these altars had statues of the gods and they replaced them with saints. And then they started telling the peasants through oral tradition the deeds of the saints and that what the saints had done and what the saints would continue to do for the people if they continued this tradition. This way, this illiterate, uneducated, lower rung of society kept just doing the same rituals they were always doing, but instead of doing it to their ancient local um, deity, they were now making worship to a saint. And so saint worship, saint as a lower form of worship became a very seminal and very like keystone piece to converting people into Christianity. Flash forward to the high middle ages, the, uh, the old gods are now completely forgotten. And now people are fully Catholic and they're doing their same rituals. This is why we have Halloween, All Saints Day. This is why Christmas is celebrated at the time of year that it is, at the end of the year. This is why Easter is celebrated when it does. Keeping these pagan symbols, this pagan light, but making it monotheistic and then adding in saints to supplant these lesser known uh, deities of the ancient pagan religion was a way to plant a narrative said to be spread through ritual First, the worship of the saint, and not literal worship if you're Catholic, but doing the pagan-style rituals for the saint first, and then secondly, through the spread of folklore about what the saint does when you do the rituals to help people out, is very reminiscent of how the Bene Gesserits plant the idea that the Savior, the messianic figure, will come from Outworld to Arrakis. I love it. That has brought such an interesting dimension to that conversation. So I really appreciate that. There's one other aspect of the Bene Gesserit that I want to briefly reflect on, which is that they are frequently referred to as witches, 
by other characters in the story. And that is pejorative in most cases. People are, are saying that when they are feeling threatened by uh, the Bene Gesserit. But I think it's an interesting inversion of, you know, age old mythological tropes and folklore as well to have this order of women who are the most powerful people in the universe. Like the emperor has ostensibly the most power, but the Bene Gesserit are pulling all of the strings. They are serving, you know, greater purposes than most. Uh, and they know more than most. And they do things that if anybody in the last 500 years saw, like the voice, if we saw somebody use the voice on another person, even you and I in 2021 would probably be like, uh, she's a witch. Uh, that's witchcraft. And they're doing these things that would have gotten them burned at the stake in Salem in 16-whatever. Uh, but they are not being persecuted in this science fiction world, in this future. They are revered. They are part of a, a, a religious order that is lauded and that has a seat at the most important tables in the galaxy. So I think there is an interesting evolution of uh, the idea of witchcraft and women in power that, again, is very complicated for me when I look at Dune because now we have women who are the most powerful people in the universe and who are doing things that would have been considered witchcraft previously. Uh, and would have been considered, you know, devil worship. Uh, now that is, you know, something that is is needed in the universe. But there's also something that to me gets a little, um, it, I don't know, it's a little complex because it feels like it's playing on stereotypes of manipulative women. So I feel very complicated about um, how the Bene Gesserit are portrayed in Dune. I, I don't know where to go from that, but to kind of sit in the ambiguity of it for a bit. Well, the Dune world is fiercely patriarchal. There are men, they're heads of household, they're expect to have military prowess, they're expect to have some air of nobility or self-sacrifice to those who that they purport to rule, but in reality, they can do whatever they want with their subjects. And you have the Bene Gesserits, they're existing in this patriarchal world because they have these things like the voice they are revered. They have a religious awe about them and they have scientific prowess in how they breed people. They get kind of welcomed to the seat at the table, but I firmly believe there's an imaginary Dune universe that if all the nobles decide, okay, we need these Benny Jesuits out, they would not be able to fully defend themselves. If there was like a mass coup against the Benny Jesuits and Sardaukar came in the middle of the night sure, and killed them all. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the real power in this world, in this universe, resides in, in force, in being able to command armies, to subjugate people to your will. And the Bene Gesserits have found a way to, in a, and I see where it's problematic, it's almost like Lady Macbethian. Yeah, very, yeah. To whisper in the ears of the great military leaders and try to direct their sword. And in that respect, they play in some bad tropes and some patriarchal tropes but I would say the counter to that to me, and, and I will gladly want to hear your take on this as well, is the Lady Jessica as a character who defies the order and is told to have a daughter but has a son, teaches her son the ways of the Bene Gesserits, that's forbidden. And then at the end of it, she ends up being with her son and accompanying him on the start of this next adventure. And in this respect, you have a character that's able to walk the line of dedication to the Bene Gesserit order, 
dedication to the man that she loves in the Duke, dedication to her son, and all these conflicting interests that she has, she's able to balance them and be pretty autonomous in the story and not just be a pawn. And because of that, she's able to presumably help have the Quisette Sadarak arise because she's willing to buck the Bene Gesserits and say, you know what? I'm going to have a son. Why? Because I love the Duke and that's what he wants. And I don't care about this order. And you know what? I'm going to teach my son the voice and the weirding way. And you know what? I don't care that you don't like it. I don't care that you want to kill him because of this. We're, this is my son and I'm going to fiercely protect him. And as they go on this next stage of the adventure, I suspect that will continue. That line of behavior will continue. So in this respect, in the lady, Jessica, I think we have some redemption because she's able to love so deeply. She's able to think so deeply. She's able to defend herself with Chris knife, with the sword. She's able to get herself out of dangerous situations. I think to me, she is not a lady Macbeth at all. She actually loves the Duke and loves Paul. Yeah, I think that's a great argument. And Lady Jessica is a terrific character in the book. And she is, I think, really well uh, well drawn by Rebecca Ferguson in these movies. So I think that's a really good argument. Thank you. Absolutely. But I totally get, because, I mean, Dune is complicated. I don't love it. Yeah, same. I don't love it. And I also love it. But yeah, I do it, love it. It has this tension between creating these incredible women characters like Jessica and Chani, or Chani as she's uh, in, the, in the movie. Uh, and then also... Uh, having these really scary stereotypes that it plays in when it comes to patriarchy. I want to talk a little broadly about some of the world building in Dune, some of the terms they use and kind of how this galactic empire works as, as a society drink <laughs> in that case, I think it, it makes a little more sense. That's no, fair. I don't know. Yeah, that's fine. yeah. All right. I have to take a drink. <laughs> I said it. All right. One of the things I think is interesting are some of the terms that you see for political offices. So you have an emperor, the emperor, there's a baron, and then there's a duke. And these terms are somewhat complicated in the way they're deployed in this movie. When you think of an emperor, the instant connotation that you get is the Roman Empire. And the reason why you get that connotation is the word emperor comes from Imperator in Latin. It is a Roman word, and the Romans didn't have kings, they had emperors. And you also get the sense of any one person who controls a vast amount of territory controls an empire. But even then, some of the world's largest empires were not run by emperors. Think the British Empire. Yes, it had a king, but it, it shared power with a, with a, uh, a parliament. The Roman Empire, long before there was an emperor, had a Senate that ruled it. In fact, the Senate ruled it so poorly that the people demanded Caesar become an emperor. So there's this, this idea that there is an empire here, but that stands a little in contrast to terms like baron and duke, which baron and duke are terms that don't exist, at least in the Western European history, until the fall of the Western half of the Roman Empire and the emergence of medieval feudalism. Those are terms that are very medieval. So what is it? Is this a, a empire in the classical way of the Roman Empire that we think of when we, when we think of the word emperor? Or is this a medieval society that has dukes and barons, etc.? 
which way is this actually structured? What is the actual politics of Dune as expressed through the movie? Now, book readers that, that are deep into the book lore, you may know more about this than me, but I'm judging from book one, but primarily from the movie. And I would argue that what we are seeing is a sci-fi version of feudalism. And feudalism is a very perplexing word. It's difficult to pin down. Since about the 1960s, medieval historians have been debating about the use of the word feudalism, what the word feudalism means, should it be used at all, and if the word is completely debunked and should be purged from the record. Now, I'm not going to answer that debate because I'm really not qualified to as not being a medievalist, but I will take one of the standard and one of the original definitions of feudalism and apply it to this movie. And the word feudalism comes from the Latin word for fief, which is the idea that there is someone who owns land and grants that land in the form of a fief, which is where we get the word feudalism, which is the application of fiefdoms of feudal feudalism. And you give that land to be worked by someone else. That other person owes you what's called the oath of vassalage. How it works quite simply I have a piece of land that I own. I have lots of acres. I give some of those acres to someone else of, I view of lesser rank to me to work. They have the ability to work that land. They have the ability to create revenue from that land. So it sounds like a really good deal. I give this oath of vassalage. I get revenue. I get land. Uh, what does the Lord get that gives me this? Well, the Lord gets the ability to call me for military service at any time that the Lord so chooses. So you are now going to be my vassal. When I need military service, I can call upon you. You come in your armor and regalia and you help fight for me. You get a piece of my land. I get your military service. As a Lord, I can also call upon you for advice, for difficult situations. Who should my daughter marry? Who should my son marry? Should I go to war with this Lord over here? And the idea is that you create this vertical relationship among the warrior elite aristocracy where there is a lord on the top, vassals on the bottom. Terms like baron, duke, count also apply. The smallest plot of land that one could have in medieval Western Europe would be a barony. So if you are a vassal and you are given a barony, you have the title baron. Larger than that would be a county. And so that if you are a vassal and you're given a county, you are a count. And then so on, a duchy becomes a duke. And in this way, you have a very vertical structure. Now, this sounds all really neat and should work perfectly, right? In historical record, it didn't work at all. No. Most of the time, it was a horrible failure. Why? Because once I get a piece of land and I build a castle on it, castles are near impregnable in medieval, in medieval architecture, medieval warfare, so if a lord calls me and wants me to come in for my vassalage oath and I am honor-bound to go fight, but I'm in my castle, I don't really have to. And if that lord kind of offended me, I may actually even decide to go join with the other lord rather than the lord that I owe the oath of vassalage to. And all of this has to do with how do you organize your military elite when there is no empire? When the Roman Empire falls when the landowning elite are simply just those who fight, 
when they are no longer educated, when there's no longer a coin economy where you're paying things in barter for, how do you organize this? When there are no real kings or emperors to organize you into a state with set laws and traditions, feudalism as this relationship between lords emerges. Worth noting, that's not the only way to define feudalism, and some argue that's a bad way to define feudalism. But we very much see that alive and well in Dune. You have a baron, you have a duke, they have an oath of vassalage to the emperor, and hence they are obliged to follow what the emperor says. Duke uh, Atreides, even Duke Leto Atreides, even calls Arrakis his fief, which is the word where we get feudalism from. So in this respect, it's very feudal. However, as the Middle Ages progressed from the high then into the late Middle Ages, this dysfunctional feudal relationship started to break down and you start seeing the emergence of nation states where at the top you would have the king and all of the nobles would owe vassalage to the king. In theory, in the high Middle Ages, this was true, but in practice, it wasn't. Whereas in the late Middle Ages, it starts to become true. But it's worth noting, none of these kings ever took the title emperor, or very few would ever take the title emperor for a whole host of other reasons I won't get into now. Some tried to, some would. But if you did take the title of emperor, it was totally an honorific. It meant nothing. Whereas in this world, in the world of Dune, the title emperor really is very powerful. It actually matters. The emperor has their own personal guard. People are listening to the emperor. People are following the emperor. So what world is this really based off of? Well, in part, it's feudal. But I would also argue that it is an emperor in the vein of some ancient empires, but not the Roman. I would argue that the world of Dune is an empire, but it is much more based off of the Sassanid Persian Empire, which is a revival of the Persian Empire. We've done an episode on 300. If you're listening, I'll assume you've seen 300. This is not those Persians, but this is an empire that arises out of the Middle East from the area of modern-day Iran, and they're called the Sassanids. They were trying to revive the Persian Empire of old by toppling the Parthians. Now, how the Persian Empire worked is that you would have a Persian king, and the title that they would take would be, and forgive me, I'm going to mess this up, Shah Nahasha, which translates to King of Kings. It's worth noting that if you ask a Persian, they're not an empire, and they're not an emperor. They would say that they are the king of kings. How this society works is that the ancient Persian empire, the Sassanid Persian empire, would have things called satrapies. These are like provisional governors, and they would deploy the satrapies to different areas who would govern in the name of the king of kings, very much in the way a duke would or a baron would in Dune. So they would go to these different areas, operate as a as a ambassador of the king of kings do the king of kings will they would owe allegiance to the king of kings and if the persian king said you need to come fight they were expected to come fight there was also a long legal tradition of written law that they were based upon and that they would follow after all it is the middle east where we have our first written law codes in hammurabi's law codes 
in the first sort of imperial society of all human history, which were the Babylonians, which is the first time one person ruled over a huge swath of territory. And then they started writing down their laws to pass from generation to generation. Harken back to our previous conversation. Written laws are one easy way to transmit who you are as a people, what you think is both morally and legally right from one generation to another. You write it down and you codify it into a law code. Now, here's where I think it gets interesting. And here's why I think Frank Herbert is doing that. And the reason is because this entire narrative is set in Arrakis. Arrakis is what? It's a desert planet. The Sassanid Persian Empire was a very successful empire, rivaling that of Rome at the time in both population, in both technological achievement, and in terms of raw territory that it controlled. At this point in time, it's worth noting, the Romans that existed, we now call them the Byzantine Empire, but that's a topic for another story. They called themselves Romans. What happened to the Sassanid Persian Empire? A group of desert-roaming pastoral nomads got wind of a new prophet, militarized, and eliminated the Sassanid Persian Empire and formed the first Islamic caliphates. And here's where the glue is. This is where the Fremen are so integral to understanding this world and the inspiration I believe both Venu and Herbert are playing with. In the Sassanid Empire, they were facing threats on all sides. You had the Byzantines slash Romans pressing into their territory. You had the uh, rise of the Mongolian Empire, another one of history's great and amazing empires, pushing in on their eastern border. And there is this place that we now call Saudi Arabia, where the Arabian Desert is, and there were these desert-dwelling people that lived there that were not part of any empire that nobody even cared about. Occasionally, they would trade with the empires. Occasionally, they would be mustered to fight. And in there, there is a prophet named Muhammad who goes to a cave and has a vision of the angel Gabriel and preaches a new gospel. And from there, from that start, from that simple vision comes the greatest medieval empire of all, which are the Muslim caliphates and the Islamic golden age of the 8th and ninth centuries. What I'm saying is, if we are to understand the historical soup that this movie is playing in, unlike so many narratives that are Western-focused, we have to de-think of our Western ways and think of this story as more Near Eastern. And think of this movie as more Middle Eastern. And the fact that we have to look at Paul not as a messianic figure in the vein of Jesus, but as a messianic figure in the vein of Muhammad. And the fact that he can see the future, and the fact that he lives under an empire, and that that, that empire operates in systems that seem feudal, but are also very much like the Sassanid satrapy system, and that based upon a religious vision that he has will start a holy war, which will consume most of the galaxy in the way that Muhammad's rise to prominence, both politically and spiritually inspired the Arabs to create one of the vast, most vastest medieval empires that there was stretching from modern day Turkey 
to modern-day Spain, including all of North Africa, radically transforming both Near Eastern and Western society for forever. I got chills once I realized you were going, uh, where you were going with that. Yeah, that is excellent and absolutely makes sense to me that that is a huge piece of the puzzle when it comes to the inspiration for the story, for Paul's rise to power, uh, and for the role of the Fremen. I do think it's also really interesting to look at the historical parallels when you think about how, uh, you know, and forgive my use of the more efficient term dark age, after a dark age uh, in the early Middle Ages, the brightest shining civilizations that erupted from that were those of the Middle East, the ancient Near East, and the Islamic caliphates. The uh, architecture, the art, the mathematics, the intellectual um, uh, pr progress that was made during that time is astounding, especially when we uh, tend to look back with a Western worldview and think of the Middle Ages from start to finish as being a really uh, intellectually stunted time and artistically stunted time, especially thinking about the Italian Renaissance to come. Uh, so looking at that and paralleling that with Dune, which takes place in a distant future that has uh, seen a an intergalactic empire rise out of the ashes of uh, a, an, a dark age, and that intergalactic empire uses terminology that preserves so much of um, of ancient Near Eastern, Middle Eastern language um, and religious connotation. So I just think that is a super interesting way to to conceive that. And further evidence, this is according, now this is one source. As a history guy, I like multiple sources, but I've got one source here. This was an article that I read from a, um, a journalist named Ali Karju Rivari, and this was in response to when the Dune trailer dropped. And this was in Al Jazeera, right? This was in Al Jazeera. Right. So the emperors are called Padishahs, which is a diversion, which is diversion, which is from a, per, a Persian word. So literally the word Padishah is a Persian word. So when the emperor, the Padishah emperors is saying they are the Persian emperors. And so it's literally, a, yeah. according to this, it's a one-to-one -one translation. And when I read that, I'm like, click. They're not the Roman Empire. This is my own Western bias. This is the Persian Empire. And from there, I learned two fundamental truths about my experience with Dune. One, which is a personal lesson. The second one, which is a broader point about the text that I am very, I feel very complicated about. So point one that I learned is unravel your own internal biases when you think you're Analyzing a text objectively, in particular when it is starting to confound you and you don't think you understand it, that's probably because you're looking at it from a lens of your own bias, not the text as it is. And often, if you can shed that bias, then you can see what it's really about. Mm. And I think that is a very good point to anyone engaged in a project like The Midnight Myth, which is about analyzing history, mythology, philosophy, and ultimately how those subjects in, interject into art. We call it pop culture, but I would also say yeah. in the case of Dune art. And the second lesson more broadly about Dune has to do with a, a phrase that sometimes we hear in describing futuristic pieces of artwork, storytelling narratives that are bleak. And that is usually the term dystopian. 
dystopian refers to mankind, humankind has made it to the future and it is worse than it was in the past. These are the movies like Book of Eli, every zombie movie you've ever seen, anything that could be described as post-apocalyptic. Most of the Dark Tower series is a dystopian series. And I think I've relearned what that word means. If humanity can make it 20,000 years in the future from when Frank Herbert wrote that book in the middle of the 20th century, and that the greatest power dynamic that would exist post-humanity conquering the cosmos and colonizing the entire galaxy is a fundamental dynamic that represents what we had in the Persian Empire in the 6th, 7th, and 8th centuries of the Common Era, which is a to say, not to take too much of a Marxist view on it, but a bit of a Marxist view on it, to say that the fundamental dynamics of the world in Dune, of the world imagined by Frank Herbert, is the world of oppressor and oppressed. And that the best that we can hope for is that the oppressed rise up to become the new oppressors. Man, that's bleak. That is truly dystopian. That means that medieval power structures of oppressed and oppressor, they come back. They come back thousands of years in the future and humanity has learned nothing at all despite the technological advances, despite the colonization of multiple planets, despite being able to travel throughout the galaxy. The fundamental dynamics of Dune is oppressor versus oppressed. Might makes right. And our hero succumbing to a narrative he knows metaphysically is untrue, that he is some sort of a special uh, messianic figure, and succumbing to that simply so he can flip the dynamic that the Fremen become no longer the oppressed but the new oppressors, I don't think there can be anything more dystopian than that. It's like the complete opposite of Star Trek, right? Which imagines a distant future where we have overcome our biases, we've overcome our differences, and we've embraced diversity and inclusion and created a world that is accepting of everyone and where people are freer and where people have more uh, ability to live their authentic selves. Uh, this is not that. This says we don't move forward. We uh, we seem to move forward, and yet in many ways we move back. And that's a reflection that I've had, you know, from both of the aspects of the conversation that we've had tonight is that uh, in this imagined future that Frank Herbert gives us and that Denis Villeneuve gives us, we haven't been enhanced by technology or by our new abilities or our new relationships in creating a paradise. We have rather... Uh, started to rely on the structures of the past. We go back to feudalism. We go back to mythically planting uh, superstitions among people. We rely on uh, on things that are ancient rather than things that are new, which is kind of an unexpected way to present a vision of the distant future. And what what strikes me especially about Dune is that these these mythical pasts, these folk tales of great heroes uh, and these legends that inspire us have always been that. They've been a symbol of hope 
inspiration, uh, uh, this is why the world is this way, or here's how we can learn to be better people, or here's a lesson that we can take forward into our lives, that has historically been a huge uh, purpose for mythology and legend. And what Dune is saying is, let's create a legend around this guy, Paul. He's the Messiah. He's going to rise up and uh, you know help these uh, these disenfranchised people overcome their oppressors. Actually, he's about as bad as it can possibly get. Somebody thinking they're a messiah is the scariest thing in the world. And looking at your heroes as though they are perfect uh, can actually be really detrimental. Yeah, you said the word cynical at yeah. the beginning of this podcast, and I said dystopian. And I think the true word is bleak. Yeah. It is a very bleak narrative that we see in this movie and the book Dune is very bleak. Contrary to a lot of action adventure sci-fi in which the hero most must overcome in cra crazy incredible odds and then they overcome them and they become better and by extension they make the world better. In Dune we see this hero trying to overcome odds with a vision of the world and albeit the universe actually becoming worse. Yeah. And that is something to meditate on. It is a completely unique take on the quote unquote hero's journey. Yeah, absolutely. For lack of a better um, term to describe it. And it is, it is a very unique look on science fiction and the role of heroes in science fiction. But at the end of the day, Dune is about a very bleak future with very bleak prospects with characters in bleak circumstances that make the best out of it, even if that means billions may die. And that is where I get in the complicatedness of this movie yeah. because I don't feel good at the end of it. I feel a little hollow. I feel a little less optimistic. I feel a little scared, yeah. And I feel a little more willing to retreat and just read history books yeah. and watch science fiction movies rather than go out there and try to make the world a better place because it doesn't matter. Your best intentions will have unintended consequences and 20,000 years in the future. We are all going to be living in fiefdoms and we'll be peasants for Lords extracting our resources and killing each other for pleasure and fun. Yikes. On that note, would you like to end just to like lift things up a little bit with anything you're excited to see in part two? So anybody who's listened to this point and has not read the entire book, we may spoil some, some things that come later in the series. I am very interested to see how they cast and the character Faye. Um, Fade, yeah. Fade, pardon me. Sting plays him in the David Lynch yeah, movie. memorably. An interesting character in the books and like a foil to Paul. I'm certainly interested in that. I want to meet the Princess Irlan, yeah. who is a huge character. Actually, not really a character, but is a presence in yes. the first book. And, um, oh man, what's her name? Paul's sister. Aaliyah. Aaliyah, I'm yeah. interested. I wonder how Denis Veneux will do the scene where Paul drinks the water of life yeah, and sees past, yeah. present, and future all at once. I have no idea how that can translate cinematically. Yeah, but if anybody can do it, it's Denis Villeneuve. Um, anything else? No, how about you? Yeah, so I know that Villeneuve has said that he, obviously he's been greenlit to do a part two and to finish the, the first novel, but he's also said that he would love to make a trilogy including Dune Messiah. 
And I actually found when I read them uh, that I was a little bit more attracted to Dune Messiah than I was to Dune. I felt a little bit better about it. And I think I might be uh, in the in the minority about that. But one of the reasons that I love it so much is that Aaliyah is a major character. So probably my favorite character in the books has not been introduced yet, except that she is uh, she's a twinkle in Jessica's eye right now. So she's on screen, but she's in somebody's belly. Um, so I'm very excited to meet her. I'm excited to spend more time with her. Um, and also for, you know, maybe we'll see that charming Duncan Idaho guy again. And in, for that. And until next time, be kind. <laughs>